Right. Welcome everyone today to our webinar uh, on the recently launched book Sisters in Mourning by uh, edited by Suyan Pak and Mikhail Springer, uh, two of the lab's closest collaborators, wonderful colleagues. I'm so grateful to both of you for the book and for this event today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the process of how you arrived at this, the, the, the origins of the book and what you hope it can, it can help teach us about spiritual care. So we're joined today by the editors of the book, Suyan Pak, who is at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York, and Mikhail Springer, who is at, oh no, I've blanked, is it Presbyterian, New York Presbyterian? New York Presbyterian. All right, who is manager of CPE at New York Presbyterian, in addition to many other hats uh, that she wears as well. Suyan Mikhail, welcome to you both. Let me turn it over to you. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. I'm very grateful to the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab for everything that the lab does and for you, Michael, for hosting us and inviting us to be here today. Sue is an incredible partner. I love doing everything we ever do together. together. And uh, what a pleasure to be doing this event for our book, Sisters in Mourning. So we want to talk a little bit about why Sisters in Mourning is something that's important for chaplains to be exposed to. Sisters in Mourning is a book that grew out of the mourning for Sue's mother and my mother. And Sue will tell you more about the process that led us to create the book. The book is a project of seven women who came together and have engaged in reflective practice, reflecting on our lives, calling meaning from the experiences in our lives, both as human beings and as professionals who serve in religious leadership capacities in different religions. Um, part of the, what made the experience so powerful was the diversity in our group. Chaplains are always engaged in reflective practice. And having the opportunity to think about something as intimate as our relationships with our mother, and to know that in those moments of our caregiving and in our grieving, we both had something to learn to enrich our own lives and something to learn to enrich our professional practice. That's at the core of this book. So often as chaplains and professional caregivers, we focus on other people. And we know that there's a very deep relationship between our intimate selves and what we bring to other people. This book is an embodiment of that. Doing the work that led to the creation of this book meant that we were doing important self-care, knowing that our own grief and paying attention to the life and heart work that went into caring for our mothers, um, meant that we were equipped to care for others because we had taken care of ourselves. Doing it in a group meant we were not alone, fostering community for doing this work together. And that's part of what we're offering you today, to have a glimpse into what it is to have a collaborative, reflective process, to be human beings together, so that in embracing our humanity as fully as we can, we are really equipped then to come and serve others even more fully than we would have without the experiences that are so core 
to who we are. Thank you, Michal. So Michal and I have been working together for over a decade. Uh, when Michal was at Jewish Theological Seminary across the street, we did a lot of fun things, collaborated, we imagined new things. And so we were colleagues, but we became more than colleagues, uh, especially with regards to our care for our mothers, both who had Alzheimer's and we were journeying um, the caregiving journey separately and together. We would share what was happening in our lives. And my mother, um, I, I, so my mother and Mikhail's mother passed away less than a, a month of each other. In fact, the day that, that I admitted uh, my mother to hospice was the day that we then went to Sat Shiva for Mikhail's mother. Um, so there's some connection that beyond our professional um, relationship that, that goes beyond, um, I don't know, uh, you know, we have relationships that just flourish outside our um, boundary professions and this became something more. And so I was, when my mother passed away, I sent a note to Michal saying my mother passed away in this state and she sent an email saying, Sue with much blessings and said, we are sisters in mourning. And that became uh, sort of a seed for our engagement. And I was talking to another colleague and he said, hmm, sisters in mourning, that's a book that needs to be written. And I said, well, we know exactly who to write it with. So I contacted Michal and she, she got some of her friends together. I got some of my friends together and we gathered to explore this question about uh, what does it mean to care and how do we care and how does this um, expectation for care come from our religious and cultural and gendered lives? Uh, all these intersections that come together, what does it mean to care and what are the expectations and how does that affect our grieving after we cared and after the loss? And what does it mean for religious professionals, pe people who are in positions to care for others to have gone through this process. So that, those are the questions we're interested in pursuing and exploring together. And we gathered and we had our meeting and it was the first meeting was just so, uh, just ex almost explosive with, with connections and ideas. And from there we decided to, the process, we didn't really know if it was gonna be a book, but we knew we needed to be in this process together. And so the process was let's write. And so we all kind of had a theme and we wrote, each, each of us wrote on a chapter and we met every other month and we, we would sort of present whatever we've been writing, uh, whatever shape it was, no judgment. And that invited the sisters to engage in the, from the places and tell their own stories of their, their caring of their loss and the grieving. So what we found that, um, in this engagement was that doing this in community, and I know Mikhail mentioned this earlier, meant that we were actually giving birth to each other's grief that we didn't really know we had. We thought we had, and some of us thought we've figured this out, we've been grieving for a long time. Some of us have lost um, their mothers long time ago. Some of us for Mikhail and I were, was more, we were, it was more fresh, um, but very different. And, 
we were sort of engaging each other's grief in ways that we didn't know that we needed to grieve. So that was giving voice to something we didn't know that needed to be given voice to. So that was such a powerful experience. And, and we allowed each other's stories to interrupt or interweave into our stories. So I think that also made this not about my own journey, but how my journey intersects with each other's journeys and how we create this bigger context for this work together. So just a, a, a few themes that came out from, from our work together and what's found in the book. So there's obviously, um, uh, you know, we are, this is a gendered expression of care, right? Because we're all women and, and, and the whole tension between caregiving and self-care showed up in every chapter. We were all struggling with how do we give our care for our mothers and, and then what does it mean to care for ourselves? Um, the tension between um, and tied to the ob obligation to care and guilt that we did not enough or didn't, couldn't do enough or weren't there enough. Uh, so that obligation and guilt showed up in almost every chapter. There, you know, not everyone had um, good relationships with their mothers. There are complicated relationships and the strained relationships. So how does that come, come you know, through when you're grieving, when you're grieving the loss? And what does that mean when you remember your mothers and with all the complicated relationship that was there before the loss? So what does that mean to, to grieve in that way? trauma came up almost every every chapter um, and the transgenerational transmission of trauma uh, from whether it's displacement war genocide racism or whether it's a personal loss of an accident um, trauma is embedded in almost everyone's stories and as we listen really to the stories of trauma we also found that there were also stories of resilience so we saw both trauma and resilience showing up in every chapter. So I think finally, what I wanna say, and, and how you could add more to the themes that are coming up here, is that this realization or recognition that yes, we've cared for our mothers, we've lost our mothers, and then we're grieving our mothers as if, but it's not like it's ended, right? Our relationship with our mothers continue in a different way, different shape. And mothers, we, I mean, we often hear um, each of us talk about how our, our mothers still teach us, still are with us in, in profound ways that we were able to share together. So th those are some of the themes that I would say uh, came up. Michal, do you uh, wanna add any more to the themes? Oh, and the other piece is that the book was trying to reflect the way we did our group, which is, as I shared, we interrupted each other with our stories. So the book is written with um, one person's writing and then there are interruptions of each um, of, of another sister's story that was sparked by a phrase or a word or image from the person's chapter. And then we have these text boxes that show up. So they're intertextual, intermingling of stories that actually enrich the, the, the stories uh, more than just a singular person's story. So it is, it is a collective work in, in, in every piece of the, piece of the, the word. So I don't know, Michal, do you wanna? 
Yeah, so to, to add to that for a little bit, um, we found that we had overlapping themes with one another. So for instance, the way that immigration and being the child or a child of immigrants or immigrating ourselves and the richness of coming together and seeing our stories through the prism of somebody else's story in our group. Um, and that showed up in the way that those text boxes come into the story. So uh, when I told the story of sitting Shiva for my mother, and then to hear the voices of other people and having their reactions to what Shiva is and how that corresponds or differs from the way that they mourned communally for their mothers when they died. So that would be one piece I want to add. The other is that we began this progress, this process before COVID. And then COVID hit. <clears throat> um, we always gathered pretty much from the beginning on Zoom. So we were able to continue our work together as a group on Zoom. But as we were thinking about the stories of our mothers, all of our mothers died before COVID. And so in some ways, we just had to acknowledge how blessed we felt that we didn't have the restrictions of a pandemic to add into our caring and grieving processes. And we wanted our book to be relevant to people who have had experiences and will have continued to have experiences um, trying to be in relationship with the fears of bringing COVID into fragile people who are in a dying process. So I want to acknowledge that my mother-in-law just died uh, a little less than a month ago. And she went into steep decline during COVID. And the last year and a half has been a process of traveling with her in COVID. And then of course, having a funeral during COVID. And I'll talk a little bit more later about the differences between my mother's experience and my experience with my mother-in-law. But when we were writing the book, we wanted to make sure that we embraced all of the experiences, including what's been happening with COVID over the last year and a half. So I'm going to um, read a little bit from my chapter to give you a taste of what the book sounds like, feels like. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my mom. My mother's name was Tova Springer, and she was born in 1930 in British Mandate, Palestine, and lived there, participated, participated in the creation of the State of Israel, and lived there until she came to this country in the early 1950s to work at the Israeli Embassy in Washington. So. Um, My relationship with my mother took place in two languages, in Hebrew and in English. And my consciousness as her daughter took place with that multiplicity. Um, and I'm going to talk about some of that. The, the through theme in my identity and in my relationship with my mother is really being Jewish, which takes place in any setting, in any country. And so my own identity as a human being is that my Jewishness is thoroughly in me wherever I am located. And you will see in what I read that it is my Jewishness that anchors me in my grieving for my mother. Um, 
even as I, I do that in the context of being here in the United States, um, speaking English as my primary language. So just a little intro into my mom. She died um, in 2000 and now I'm forgetting, 2017, four and a half years ago. Sue, do you want to call up the, yeah, thank you, okay. The surprise for me was that in the moment that my mother died, I felt that I knew her completely. But as I sat Shiva and people asked questions about my mother and her life, I realized that she was in so many ways a mystery to me. Shiva awakened in me a desire to know more, to ask her questions that I had never thought to ask, to ask her questions that I had asked many times but that she had never managed to answer. Having my uncle at Shiva gave me access to his understanding of my mom, his beautiful rendering of his older sister who joined the Haganah at 16 and fought for the creation of the state of Israel as a secretary, who learned to swallow paper in case classified documents were in danger of being compromised. And suddenly I couldn't believe that she had slipped through my fingers and now it was too late. It broke my heart that all I had were fragments. But every day of Shiva opened up a new world. The fragments shifted and my relationship to them shifted. The grief was alive, an organism. Every day as people piled into my apartment to help us make a minion, the required prayer forum, I would serve as Shlichat Sibur, the prayer leader, this is the special mitzvah for the mourner. With the voices of the minion behind me, I would be held as I chanted the traditional liturgy. And different phrases from the liturgy would announce themselves in new ways, catching my attention and letting me know that they were included in the liturgy from the beginning, just for that moment. One of these was the prayer known as Avot, the ancestors the first blessing in the Amidah, the prayer at the center of every prayer service. Blessed are you, our God, and the God of our ancestors. The prayer is rooted in the idea of schut avot, the merit of our ancestors. Our relationship with God is secure and abiding no matter what we do because of the merit of our ancestors who lived in ways that engendered such a strong bond with the divine that the abundance of their merit has spilled over throughout the generations and continues to wash over us even now. And now my mother was an ancestor. As I recited this prayer every day, three times a day in community, I felt my mother transitioning into her ancestorhood, securing her place in my life in a new way. She was gone and not gone. My journey with my dead mother was beginning. The second prayer in the Amidah is Mikhaya Meitim, who gives life to the dead. As a rabbinical student, I have been greatly disturbed by the challenge of embracing a belief in life after death. It was the process of being with people as they died they, that loosened my attachment to rationalism and allowed me to embrace the living that continues after death. As a new mourner, I proclaimed my belief in the possibilities of life after death and open myself to discovering what this could look like for me and my mom. On the Shabbat that fell during Shiva, I went to Shul 
and recited the special blessing for Shabbat found in the Amidah. This was my mother's favorite prayer in her final years of life. In fact, it became her favorite song. If I asked her what song she wanted to sing, this would be the song she would ask me to sing over and over again. And so I did. As Sue mentioned, my mom lived with dementia at the end of her life. And so this asking over and over again came out of that place of maybe not even remembering fully that she had just said it, and this is what she wanted again, and this is what we did again. As I recited the blessing that Shabbat, I knew that I would always find my mother in the recitation of those words. As I meditated on the words, I discovered something that had always been there, that the words themselves had a particular connection to my mother. The phrase that leapt out at me was, Sabenu mituvecha, satisfy us with your goodness. My mother had always lived out a simple spirituality of gratitude, conveying a deep satisfaction with the smallest of gifts. As a child, I had always wanted my mother to want more for herself, disappointed that she was not more ambitious, didn't strive more. She was a stay-at-home mom until my brother and sister and I were able to be at home on our own which was when she started running my father's oral surgery practice. She was humble and she hid her embarrassment about never having finished high school, only disclosing this to me when I was in my twenties, when she sought my blessing as she wrestled with abandoning her longstanding hope to complete her GED, realizing that it was too much for her. I readily gave my blessing and felt a deep sadness that she had felt the need to hide. Hiding had been more of a theme in my mother's life than I had known growing up, though I was aware of how hard it was for her to share with me her memories of growing up. I didn't re realize that trauma had prevented those memories from forming, that all she had was fragments. It was while I was in rabbinical school, interviewing her as part of an assignment for my first pastoral care class, that she disclosed that her parents had placed her in an orphanage when she was three years old. Being born and raised in British Mandate Palestine, there was little food for my mother to eat and my grandparents could not both work and take care of her. So the orphanage was the only option. As I absorbed the tremendous pain of this disclosure, my mother reassured me that it was okay, that her parents visited her each week. While her acceptance took me aback in the moment, I came to understand that she lived with a deep faith in God's goodness and was satisfied. And as I examined this phrase more carefully after her death, I received a sign from my mother. The word tuvecha is shaped by the three-letter root, the three-letter root, T-O-V, or tet, vav, vet, actually two letters, but who's counting? The word tov means good. And my mother's name was Tova, the good one translated from the Yiddish Gittel, who was her grandmother, who lived and died in Poland. So here was my mother all along, and I was only now finding her. I derived great comfort in knowing that this phrase would be engraved on my mother's tombstone, a testament to how she lived and the legacy she left behind, a portal into ongoing relationships. And I'll add that now, every time I daven this prayer, every time I pray this prayer, I pause 
And I say these words and I feel that connection to my mother. It's this constant gift inside the prayer book that my mother is linked and I can always find her there, even if I'm having trouble finding her elsewhere. Sue. Thank you. Uh, I mean, how many times did I read over this, this chapter of yours and how many times have I heard you speak it? And every time I revisit this, the writing, I, I hear something I haven't heard before. And I know that that is true when our group gathers and we still gather um, every other month. It's just something new that comes up each time we visit and revisit and sit with um, sit with these stories. So it's so powerful, thank you. So my, um, I, I wanna contextualize the reading I will be doing in a minute with uh, a little bit about my mother. Um, her name is Kim Yang-suk. She was born in Northern part of Korea before the division, way up North, uh, Uiju um, in, in Korean peninsula near the border to China. And her life has been shaped by many dislocations. And so she moved with her family, uh, except her older sister who was left in North Korea. So as part of separated family where we are a separated family um, and moved down to South with her family um, in the forties before the division was solidified and so she was a refugee overnight. She lost everything. She, they took whatever they can carry. And so she, they started a new life in, in the South. And then in 1971, picked up again and came to the US as her second dislocation. And I would say when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2008. So that's her third location into another, uh, dislocation to into another space. So, um, my chapter, I was trying to understand the, the intersection of a personal life and uh, international historical pieces that are happening because we cannot separate. I could not separate my mother's life from the Korean War, the Japanese colonization, all these things that happened that, that were integral to the stories and who she is and who she became uh, and what she became, who she became with Alzheimer's. And I spend a lot of time in the book um, working through that period of time when she had Alzheimer's and, and my relationship to her where, you know, daughter, daughter, mother relationship is a relationship of memory. It is, I, daughter cannot exist if mother does not. So if she's no longer a mother, then who am I? So there are explorations of self of our relationship and and the fragments. So the title I entitled it "Fragmented Souvenir" uh, and witnessing a life. Because for me, this writing was about witnessing her life as fragmented as I saw it was. So let me read uh, from a section of my chapter here. Let's see if I could. So. Um, you can see here, you see the text box, you see that that's another sister's story coming in. And I'm going to skip over the text box just because we don't have time here, but uh, it's Linda has written a text of her story that, you know, that reminded of something from what I have written. So I, I talk about uh, my mother's uh, 
always had this practice of writing writing um, scripture verses out on on notebooks. She did it in Korean. She did it in English, and that was sort of sort of a practice. I think partly she started doing that when she was trying to learn English, and that was a way for her to learn English as well as learn to memorize the Bible. So that was her her spiritual practice. My mother did the same, meaning the writing, uh, with her life stories in her 99 cent spiral notebooks that she kept safely in some drawer, just dresser or a box. She would fill every line and page with her scribbly Korean handwriting. From time to time at family gatherings, she would bring out her notebooks and read us her stories, commanding me to translate them to our children and their generation. When we were cleaning out her apartment, I found, the note, I found her notebooks. Flipping through pages of her writing, I was struck by what I saw. She had written fragments of stories over and over again, as if to perfect the story, or perhaps to pray the story. These pages were torn out from the notebooks, rearranged, stapled together in a different order. It was difficult to make heads or tails of where one story ended, another one began. Multiple versions of the same story had numbered pages, but looking at the paper texture and color, they were torn from different notebooks and stapled together. It was as if these fragments were souvenirs from temporal places she had visited and revisited in her memory. When I finally made some sense of the fragmented pages, four stories emerged. They were stories that marked the boundary events of her life, stories of border crossing, both spatial and political. She even titled them Day of Liberation, August 15, 1945. That's from the Japanese colonization. Crossing the 38th parallel, the second try. June 25th, 1950, the day the Korean War broke out. And remembering May 25th, 1971, the day we landed in the US as immigrants. Like the fragmented souvenirs of the places she had been to, these stories called to mind the self that was coming clearer into focus because of the self that was forgotten. As if all the stored memories were vying for attention, forgetting led to remembering and remembering led to forgetting. In her, dangerous memory and dangerous forgetting were co-constitutive. My mother's loss of memory brought back with vivid details the dangerous memories of the defining moments of her life. As I read, read her piece together writings of Yu-Gi-Oh, June 25th, 1950, I recall the stories she would tell us repeatedly about that day. Her writing, her stories, her memories, and my memories became entwined as I continued to assemble the pieces, puzzle pieces of her life. I could taste, smell, and hear the sounds of the war, fear, fury, and determination. She was back there, the day the Korean War broke out, back in Seoul, in her nursing school, as a third-year student in her white uniform, blue apron, and white cap. Sounds of sirens, loudspeakers, and bombings. She was back there. The enemy tanks pointing her guns outside her nursing school, commanding people to surrender. 
She relived the anger, fear, and tears of fury as the enemy ordered them out to greet the injured enemy soldiers. She recalled being coaxed by her younger colleague, Anni, don't cry. Don't show that you're crying, you'll be in trouble. Go out there and smile to the enemy soldiers. Resisting but complying, she swallowed her pride and rage, dried her tears and greeted them. She vividly remembered nursing the wounds of enemy soldiers, sterilizing the equipment in Lysol. With her hands, she closed the open eyes of dead soldiers while making her rounds. She quietly chanted the Florence Nightingale Pledge like a talisman as she devoted herself to the welfare of those committed to her care, whether they were a friend or a foe, urged on by a practice of her adopted Christian faith, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 44. This kind of remembering is like writing ghost stories. These enfleshed stories not only repair representational mistakes, but also strive to understand the conditions under which a memory was produced in the first place toward a counter memory for the future. This is the house um, text box coming in here. I'm gonna skip this. No, no, this is the Bobby's, Bobby's text box. My mother was in the war and she was here too in a nursing home where she was busy nursing other residents back to health. She made her daily rounds, dropping into residence rooms. She helped feed student, uh, residents who could not feed themselves. Every time I went to visit her, she marveled with genuine surprise and delight. How did you find me here? How did you know that I was here? She would tell me that she was so busy that we could not spend too long doing our weekly ritual of getting her nails done or eating mandu, Korean dumplings, at a nearby restaurant. As I took her out for an afternoon outing from the nursing home, she would call out to the nurses at the nursing station, I'll be back. I'm going out for just a bit. They would all nod knowingly. Then she would ask me furtively, did you ask for time off for me? Following her lead, I would reply, yes, mom, I asked for a whole day off. Appreciating the ways I have often anticipated her needs, she would say, you know, they don't really give any food here. There is a shortage of food. And in the car on our way to the restaurant, she would inquire about her mother, how she was doing and whether she was healthy. She resurrected her mother who had been dead for 55 years. My mother was both there and here at the same time. Is this forgetting? Is this remembering? It is that third space not defined by either side of the binary, that suspended space between a failed remembering and an incomplete forgetting. In this space, against the normativizing force of predetermined rules, she dared to mix and piece together the fragmented souvenirs, not to their previous wholeness, but to the wholeness in the making. My mother inhabited this third space between remembering and forgetting. This is an in-between space called home. Ah, Sue, I love that. So can I ask you a question? Sure. Okay. 
so you speak so beautifully and evocatively of the fragments and your whole project was about these fragments. And I'm wondering, having steeped yourself in the fragments, has something emerged in that process of being immersed? Yeah, so I was thinking about, you know, how we receive these fragments, right? I mean, um, you also talk about knowing pieces of your mother and and finding out after her death, some pieces you haven't known before. So you, we're all kind of grasping these fragments that we receive. Uh, sometimes we find them, we come across them like in a letter or in a, in a notebook. Other times it's some things that people say. And I find myself weaving, um, I would say stitching these fragments together as a way of narrating a story of her life or narrating a story of my life, right? But in recognition that the stitching, the fragments together, that the stitches, the thread is not a permanent thread. It's a dissolving suture that dissolves over time that allows for other fragments to be stitched in different ways, that invites others to stitch it in their own way. But it allows for me to access stitch it differently at a different time of my life. So for example, um, for me, um, and I talk about the third space of my mother's Alzheimer's, my practice, and this is something I recognized and realized after in my reflection of, you know, with the sisters and in, in writing the book, in this writing this book, that I was entering, I needed to enter that space that she resided in. And, and every time I entered that space, I had to leave what's behind me. What is the normative thing? What is the real, real thing? Or what is the, what are the laws of the reality that I'm living with to, to, in order to be with her in her reality? And that was entering a space of unknown and it's frightening. It doesn't have the preordained uh, rules and it's time isn't the same. I'm going to show up in some, you know, in Northern Korea, you know, in one day, and then I'm in the Korean war the other day, but it's in that entering space. But that was what I needed to do every day to be in her space because I couldn't ask her to be in mine because she couldn't, but it was in that practice of entering. I realized later realized was my um, sort of stepping stone into deepening my own spiritual practice, particularly around the contemplative and mystical tradition. And after, I mean, I was doing some of that practice while she was uh, alive and I was caring for her, but after she's passed, I found myself being drawn into the space of the unknown, of the mystical space or the non-dual space, the non-binary space of this contemplative uh, practice, because that, was where my mother was drawing me. And I realized that she was drawing me all along. And that was her last gift to me. Only after four years, four and a half years, I had this sudden realization, oh, she is still leading me. And, and we were doing this together. So yeah, fragments. I mean, I don't, you know, these are different ways I'm, I'm leaving the fragments even now. So a question for you, Michal. Um, you, you mentioned that you just recently lost your mother-in-law and I know she was like your second mother to you and you have shared with me that you met her when you were 
19. So you've had a long journey with her and her long term of illness as well that you had really cared for and journeyed with her. So the question I was curious about is having done this work with the sisters, um, seven of us were processing our grief and understanding, making meaning of it. How did that shape or prepare you or were a resource for you or, or differences for you as you were um, caring for your mother-in-law and then the loss of, of her and then the subsequent grieving and you're still in grief and I think we're still all in grieving of our mothers and, and all but fresh grief right which is compounded by previous grief so yeah I'm just curious to know more about where you are with the new grief um, having gone through this intense process. Thank you. Um, when we were working together so intimately with the sisters, I would sometimes say something about my mom and the sisters were so curious and appreciative and held up these pieces of the story that I just had lived and hadn't thought that anyone would be particularly interested in. And as I was with my mother-in-law in the last, particularly the last year of her life when she was in home hospice, I had the, the sisters on my shoulder helping me to treasure everything that was happening, knowing that you were interested and that others could be interested and that what I was experiencing was important. That even though it was very private, it also wasn't private because it was the journey of a human being gradually slowing down into death. And the part of me that wanted to run away and have it be over with and couldn't bear it and really thought maybe she couldn't bear it was allowed to be joined with the part of me that said, you know, pause and be in this. This is the precious story of her end. And however long it takes, I'm going to keep absorbing it and valuing it and being in it together. And when we came to the end of her life, the last day of her life was the first day of Sukkot. And I was born on Sukkot, um, not on the day that she died, but in that holiday, which is a long holiday. And we went to shul together because of COVID, synagogue was online. So uh, we turned on services and I had my lulav and etrog there. And we, we shook the lulav and etrog and we went through services to get, my mother-in-law did not shake the lulav, she was really dying. But she was there and it was 15 minutes after the services ended and we said Kiddush, we sanctified the day and we brought in the meal for the, for the holiday. And 15 minutes later, my mother-in-law took her last breath. And I felt surrounded by my sisters in mourning. And uh, we haven't yet come together again since this happened, but I, I felt like, oh, I need to tell you this story because it's my story and it's our story. And for those of you who are here today, I'm now sharing it with you, that, that those moments in our lives are so rich and have so much to offer us in the grieving that we'll go through and in the living that comes next. They continue to hold us. 
Thank you. It's so beautiful, powerful. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you both. This has been um, this has been absolutely. Uh, I don't know what to call it. <laughs> it's uh, it's so engaging, um, and I I really want to thank both of you for you know for welcoming all of us here today in this into this very uh, vulnerable um, place. Of, of writing this process and, and going through this process. The comments and the questions are all, they're all saying this is hitting all the right notes and this is what people needed to hear. Uh, and I think, um, I think there's a lot of gratitude for that as well. Let me just read a couple of things here. Uh, uh, Paloma says, my mother died last year. She wanted to write her story before she died. I feel the grief. I'm struggling with both her story, my story, our stories. What advice do you have for this journey of remembering and imagining and writing? So that's really interesting. So someone else who wants to do something similar, how do you even approach that in a way that is healthy for your grief? I'll, I'll jump in. When we were uh, writing the book, we realized that we wanted to offer people uh, ways of engaging a similar process. Uh, that it wasn't just that we had gone through this process, but that we actually believed in the process as something that could be helpful for other people as well. So it's exactly the question that you're asking. Um, we never would have accessed those stories in the same way if we hadn't been telling them to other people who were curious about them and loving with us and wanted to know more that then led us to go back and reflect and retrieve more than we knew we had. So at the end of each chapter, we included questions that you can ask yourself, or ideally, our suggestion is to put together a group of people who are interested in doing this with you, where you can ask one another these questions and go more and more deeply into what you already know and want to hold on to and what you don't yet know that you will come to as you ask questions and come in community to learn more and feel that it has been restored to you. And expanded in ways you couldn't have imagined. Yes, and I would add that it's a daily practice. I mean, I uh, engage in a daily practice, although I don't do it daily, but it's daily practice. I try to do it regularly uh, of writing, uh, of something that comes up that I need to process or some memory that comes up. And I'll say, uh, I mean, I've been trying to put it in poetry form and I, I so I've been writing uh, stories that's spurred on by this project. I've been doing a lot more of it. And um, so I think there's no, I would just encourage you to get a notebook or a computer or whatever and just write and let it flow. And with no, um, what is it? Edit, editorial, uh, right? Um, yeah, voices coming in the head. Just, just write because that itself is a beautiful spiritual practice. And as Michal said, I think certainly you'll remember stories you haven't remembered before. This is a really interesting question. I'm glad someone asked it because it's, a, it's almost a difficult question to ask, but I think it's important to note that the, the mourning process is not all positive sentimentality. Every relationship has flaws and difficulties, every relationship. Uh, and so this person who's anonymous says, did you or the other sisters feel that your grief was compounded by unresolved issues or dysfunctional relationships with your mothers? The stories that each of you read were wonderful, but I'm sure that each of you have 
less wonderful stories as well. How did you incorporate that aspect of your relationships into this work? Sue, do you want to start or you want me to? Go ahead, you're jumping. Yeah, it was important to me when I, when I picked the passage that I read that I included some of my ambivalence about my mother, that part of me that wanted her to want more for herself, that felt critical of her gratitude for every little breadcrumb that she received. Um, because it was a real journey with me to reconcile to the gifts of my mother and not just stay engaged in what she wasn't. As we, as the sisters, all of us wrote together, we had many drafts and we had a space for working through a lot of the ambivalence that we were holding. And um, there was more room for love as we also made room for the critique and the pain and the, the things that weren't. So for me, the fact that my mother couldn't tell her story ever in her life was a source of great pain. It was one of the things that I talked about in, when I was in therapy as a high school student. I just couldn't understand how my mother didn't have anything to share with me as if she had nothing to offer me because she didn't have these memories. And it caused me a lot of anguish. And I was very judgmental about this lack on her part. It, it took me a long time to realize that it, it was her trauma. She didn't even have the language to know it was her trauma. But there was something about sharing the story of her storylessness that brought me to a new place of accepting that I had enough for my mother, even if I would never have the things that she lost because her brain simply couldn't hold on to them with the trauma. Yeah, and I would add that um, I think at least two of the sisters' stories, it's an active, active uh, wrestling with the mother that was really a challenge. Um, and Bobby's story to start, you know, that starts the book is profound wrestling with the mother that was making her nuts when she was younger. And, and you know, her story, you can hear, I mean, she was very possessive, very demanding and all these other things that she found really difficult to to deal with, uh, and as only child, you know, and what the relationship was with her mother, uh, and also Laura's story, um, and her mother died young, and so she also didn't have the time to process. Like some of us, like Nicole and I, had longer time where we're able to work out. You know, our relationship to our mother is different at age twenty-seven or or twenty-one than and in age fifty-five, right? There are some sort of other things that happen in between for me anyway. I mean, my you know relationship, but we had the fortunate um, longevity to be able to work through some of that. Whereas for some of our sisters, that was cut off and was not able to. And so it was recreating like what could have been, and that almost imaginative capacity to revisit the relationship, and and sort of coming to some sort of understanding, I wouldn't say it was a resolution because it's never a real resolution, but understanding that's growing and it's evolving. So yeah, I appreciate that question because that is, that is um, a challenge. And, and yeah, we, we took it head on and we took it side on as well. <laughs> Vicky has this really interesting question and I, I think I had this in my mind as well. And, and your description was so fascinating, Sue. Uh, Vicky says, Sue, can you speak more about that third place where your mom went with Alzheimer's? 
my dad had Alzheimer's for almost 10 years, and I found it very hard to get into that space. So how did you find yourself in there? Well, that was hard. I mean, it's, it's a hard place to go because, you know, first you get irritated because she asked you to repeat it over and over and she keeps forgetting things and she doesn't remember things. And so I was saying like, why can't you be in my space? I mean, I found like, it was a sudden realization. It's like, why can't you see what I'm seeing? Why can't you see from my perspective? And somehow somewhere along the line of my caring for her, something shifted and I couldn't even, I can't tell you when, or but I knew my whole orientation shifted and said, you know what? She can't come into my space. She can't be in my reality. The only way to do it is to go into hers. So I, um, I don't know how to say it. I, I just put myself in there. You know, when she was talking about the Korean war and she's asking me all sorts of things that it would say, mom, that's not happening now. Or this is like, come back here. You know, I, instead of that, I'll say, oh, so what else happened? So tell me about that. Who was there? And I would actively engage her as where she was. And, and I found out that was far more interesting than my own world. I found out so much about her world in a way that was enriched me so much and blessed by it. She would tell me her dreams of you know, seeing her mother. And, and at one point, I know I wrote something somewhere else that um, her mother, she was so wanting to be, uh, she loved her mother. I mean, tragically, her mother died traumatically early. And so her whole life was missing her mother. And so as she was going to this Alzheimer's, she was missing her mother even more and saying she wanted to be her mother with her mother. And I felt like, you know, and then like putting myself in there, it's like, wait a minute. And I'm telling my grandmother, not yet. I'm not ready to let go of her yet. Don't pull her too hard from the other side. So it's that kind of, yeah, I, I don't know how to put it. Just stepping in, just jumping right in there and saying, this is, this is, this is, the, this is a reality. This is a world. It's scary. Sometimes I don't know, you know where I am, but that was the only way I could continue my relationship with my mother in ways that was meaningful. I don't know if that makes sense or it makes sense to me, but I don't know if it translates. I think we probably have time for one more question and then we have a, we have a hard stop at one, as they say. Um, and, and I think both of you can probably answer this fairly easily. How did crafting your mother's stories for this book transform how you want to live your lives moving forward? Well, at one point, one of my daughters said to me, are you going to get Alzheimer's? And both my parents had Alzheimer's. And I said to her, probably. And she said, I'll take care of you way you've taken care of Safi. And every day there's news about new medications and treatments and possibilities for Alzheimer's. It's an incredibly exciting moment after decades of nothing. And it was during those decades that my parents were sick. So I, I do appreciate that maybe it'll be different. Maybe there'll be something more that can be done. 
but I do expect that I will be in a place of living in that third space. And I, I do brain gymnastics and eat healthy and do whatever I can to push off the time when that may happen to me. But fundamentally, I know that my body is heading into decline. And the way that I live my life is with the loving relationships that let me know that I'll be cared for when I need to be cared for. That's how I want to live. Mm. Thank you, Nicole. I can hardly speak after that. Hmm. I've been sort of really fascinated with death, not fascinated in a kind of voyeuristic way, but that um, the line between life and death is so sacred. And in a, in a sense that we live that line every day um, and we see it in nature every day. So for me, it's my lot, you know, what I hope to do is to really be prepared and, and um, welcome when that time comes and letting my children know, I mean, this is what my said, they've, they've watched how challenging it was to take care of my mother and my father. Both parents can live with us for time being. So yeah, it's, it's like, and then there, but they see that it's not just drudgery, that there is beauty, there is meaning, there is life, there is joy, there is laughter. And I, I don't know how else to live your life other than in its fullness. So that's what I hope to do, to, you know, having experienced the fullness um, every day as if every day counts. That's the hope. I don't always do it, but that's what I want to do. That's beautiful, Sue. Thank you. Thank you both so much for the book, for your time, for your wisdom. The chat room is just full of, of memories and, and remembrance of mothers. And I think that what we have what we have done here today together is, um, is something that a lot of people are going to take a lot of inter energy from. Um, um, this is a lot to this is a lot to think about. It's a lot to for us to process. Um, I encourage everyone find the book, find it in the library, go buy a copy. There's a link right at the top of the chat room. Um, you will certainly benefit from it enormously. Sue and McCall, thank you both so much. I can't wait until we talk again. I'm sure it won't be long. Have thank a great you. afternoon, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Thank bye -bye. you for joining.